Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On the Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Deborah Appleman, the Hollis L. Coswell Chair of Educational Studies and the Director of the Summer Writing Program at Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. She's also the author of the fascinating new book, Literature and the New Culture Wars, Triggers, Cancel Culture, and the Teacher's Dilemma, which discusses how culture war politics are intruding into the classroom. I'm grateful to speak with her about the book and its key ideas and arguments. Deborah, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your interest and your willingness to talk to me about this important topic. I suppose a good place to start our conversation is to describe the problem that you're seeing and hearing from other teachers. Uh, well, listeners may be familiar with the spilling of the culture war from politics out into the broader society, they may not instinctively think of literature as a place where it may manifest itself. How, Deborah, are culture war politics pervading the classroom, including the books that teachers or professors are assigning? And who is responsible? Is this a left wing or a right wing problem or both? Well, let me take that last point, which is such an important point um, first. As you know, the first uh, chapter of my book is called Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right, because one of the things that's been so astonishing to me is that this pressure of canceling this culture war is coming from both liberals and conservatives. Classroom teachers are used to kind of conservative critics who think that the books that teachers choose are inappropriate because of profane language or explicit sexual content. And we've been dealing with that with support from the American Library Association. And uh, we're about to uh, celebrate Ban Book Weeks coming up. Um, So we're sort of used to that. What we're not used to is the kind of canceling that's coming from the left. Canceling because of problematic portrayals, because of the use of offensive language, and canceling because someone has made a judgment about the appropriateness of the life of an author, for example, Sherman Alexie, and the degree to which that author's behavior should keep us from teaching their books. So it's a particular moment in time where we're being pressed from both sides. And that, of course, in the United States is exacerbated by a lot of movements, a lot of anti-gay movements, by movements of critical race theory, even though the people who talk about it don't really exactly um, know what it is, a real kind of backlash. So one of the things that happens with students, uh, there's also a good reason why this has bubbled to the surface, and that is our 
increasing awareness of students' mental health. The mental health crisis, if you will, has been exacerbated by the pandemic. Adolescence has always been a turbulent time for young people, and even normal adolescence has its you know, ups and downs. Um, but we teachers have our own version of the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. And so on one hand, we don't want to have kids read things in our classroom that perpetrate hurt. On the other hand, the purpose of reading literature is to unsettle you, is to hurt you in some ways, and is maybe, in my opinion, most importantly, giving you the opportunity to feel the hurt of other people. That's where empathy is built. So if we cancel or omit all books from our curriculum that have the potential to create emotional distress, I'm not sure what we'll be left reading. And we're leaving a site for young people to learn that important skill of empathy, empty of important words. In the book, you describe yourself as a progressive educator who is struggling with how notions of social justice and equality can manifest themselves in trends such as cancel culture and trigger warnings that ultimately stand in the way of intellectual pursuits, including by removing certain texts from the curriculum. As you explained, these people ostensibly think that they're doing right by values that you share. What do, what do they get wrong? And why do we need to be careful that even well-intended efforts to address historic wrongs or respect marginalized groups or voices don't ultimately harm our ability to think and learn? That's such a great question. I think there are a couple of things that they get wrong. Well, the first thing that they, they get wrong is that they decide a priori for the students. And if one of our goals in education is to teach students to think critically, we should do what uh, the academic Jerry Graff said a long time ago. We should teach the controversy. We should say, for example, let's just say for the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, uh, picking out some low-hanging fruit in, in, in a way, you know, this book has come under fire because of its portrayal of people of color and its use of the N-word. On the, other, on the other hand, there are things that we could learn from it. What do you think? How should we approach it? And to sort of have a point-counterpoint. I did that with a group of students who we were, wanted to read Sherman Alexie's The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fistfight in Heaven. And we didn't, we didn't not teach the book, but we also didn't hide the controversy. So think teaching the controversy and in, inviting students to make moral judgments in a protected place is one thing. I just think that there's ways in which the left is being so arbitrary, removing something and canceling things. So that's one thing that they get wrong. Another thing that they get wrong is that although we want to avoid using any language that essentializes or hurts people, when you're dealing with an author like James Baldwin, for example, James Baldwin uses the N-word to shock and to, to demonstrate to his readers what harm is being done to African-American people. He doesn't want his, or I mean, I shouldn't speak for him, I know, but I can't imagine, given his goals of his writing and his proactiveness, that he would want his works to be banned because of an offending word. Um, so sometimes we forget about the intent of the author. 
another problem, um, and this is the last one I'll mention for this particular question, is what I call in the book the problem with presentism. What liberals and others are doing is superimposing our 21st century moral code onto the 17th, 18th, 19th, and even the beginning part of the 20th century. You know, we expect the use of pronouns, the way we deal with women, the way we deal with other marginalized groups to be reflective of the hard lessons that we've learned about what it means to treat people equally. But I don't think that you can hold someone hostage who lived centuries ago to what it is that we learned. We can see what mistakes they're making and how they regard people. And then that can be the beginning of a conversation with young people about how we have grown. Writers write the world that they've lived in, and we can't punish them for writing a world that didn't exist when they were writing. It's worth emphasizing that your book is also highly critical of right-wing efforts to either micromanage curriculum through things like standardization or to similarly remove books that conservatives don't like. The net effect, though, is, as I interpret it, your small-l liberalism puts you in something of unique company in today's polarized world. What do you, why do you think this has happened, Deborah? And what has been the reaction to your book, including within progressive circles? So um, I'm holding my breath about that last part. I'm fully expecting to be canceled myself. Um, I'm fully expecting that there are going to be some people, some people whose projects of social justice and whose works um, work in the classroom and in our field of literacy education, I really admire. But I feel like they've gone overboard in removing from students the opportunity to sort of confront troubled texts and that we need to name them as being troubling. And I have to admit that it's a really uncomfortable position for me to be in. Once upon a time, I used to just really berate the new critics who would say that you had to separate the author from the text and just look at the text as this discrete, autonomous thing. But now I'm saying that about Sherman Alexi. I'm saying that about Juno Diaz. You know, I'm saying that about a variety of authors who I think have had their personal lives. I'm, I'm not even going to use the word unfairly, but maybe irrelevantly used to judge whether their books are teachable or not. And it is a really uncomfortable position for me to be in. But what it makes me think about is that maybe part of the problem that we're having in the United States and elsewhere is that we reify these positions in this kind of bifurcated way and put ourselves into these ideological silos. And we think these people don't believe what we believe, and then there's no crosstalk. So I'm finding myself really stuck in the middle and realizing that now I can see merit on one side, merit on the other side, but that both sides are kind of overreacting and the people who are suffering the most are students who have the opportunity to sort of tread treacherous waters with people who are trained to do so. I'll come later in the conversation to the inherent presumptions about students' ability to confront some of these uh, so-called trouble texts. 
But before we get there, I want to ask you about something you write in the book. You write, quote, that cancel culture is not only intellectually impoverished, it's spiritually impoverished as well. What do you mean? Why don't you elaborate on that line? Sure. And I think that this this is related in a in a maybe surprising way to some previous work that um, I've done by teaching at a high security prison for men, you know, for the past 15 years. So what I've learned is that um, human beings um, are complex creatures who make mistakes, make missteps, say things that they shouldn't, do things that they shouldn't. And it's sort of like a, one of uh, this is something that uh, Brian Stevens and Just Mercy wrote, but it's one of my uh, one of my incarcerated students' favorite quotes. Everybody's better than the worst they've ever done. What I've seen with cancel culture is this wholesale, relentless removing of someone from the public discourse. Where once they have a misstep, you know, you can think of a J.K. Rawlings, for example, and the whole a whole dust up of some things that she said and what she meant by it, and was she willing to apologize? I'm not demeaning the importance of the issues that undergird the concern, but I think that if we're going to be in the world together in meaningful ways, we are all going to say things that are wrong, write things that are wrong, do things that are wrong, and you know, there's something about forgiveness, second chances, the ability to look at someone holistically and to see what can we learn from our mistakes instead of being sentenced to a kind of literary Siberia. So that's what I mean by it being spiritually um, bankrupt, Um, that there's ways in which as human beings, we have to grow into a kind of intellectual forgiveness that I just don't see happening on, on either side. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. How is this climate of culture war contentiousness affecting faculty and students? What have you seen, Deborah, in terms of what you describe in the book as a, quote, brutal variation of bullying? Yes. So I think, for example, in one of my, first of all, I want to say that it's somewhat easier to navigate these waters as a college professor than it is as a public school teacher, partly because of the age of our students and partly because of different kinds of laws of, you know, privacy and protection. We're not always held as immediately accountable to parents, whether they be helicopter parents or not, than a public school teacher is. So there are ways in which there is a degree of freedom that I have that my colleagues who are teaching in middle school and high school do not have. But I feel that there's every choice that you make, every curricular choice that you make is so laden right now with what would happen if somebody called and, you know, objected to this? 
and not just outside of the classroom, but inside the classroom too. So the anecdote that I told in the book about students a priori telling a professor that they're not going to read The Bluest Eye because it has incest and that's triggering for them before the class even begins, before they even know that they can trust that person as a guide, um, before they can imagine that that sensitive, well-trained teacher would make accommodations because that's part of the work that we do. So walking into a classroom, you know, being afraid that you're going to offend, when you offend in a classroom, you might lose a student's ability to come to what it is that you want to learn together in a clear way. And that's a tremendous loss. It's not the same thing as saying, I'm sorry to somebody at a cocktail party. It's an enduring and I think sacred relationship that can be imperiled by the choices that we make. And I think that's really difficult. Then there are also people who are, you know, are suspect to to political um, considerations when I think about teachers in Texas and teachers in Florida, when I think about the fact that someone could lose their job, I know that I'm living in a privileged space protected by tenure, right? But when I think about public school teachers you know, and angry school board meetings and people not understanding and teachers who I personally know who have resigned because it's like the straw that breaks the camel's back. When you think about under-resourced schools, you think about the pandemic, you think about all of these things. And now having to defend what you're teaching to a whole host of people and to not be respected or trusted for the professional that you are can be backbreaking. And then everybody is afraid to not be politically correct. I'm a little afraid of it too. I mean, it's sort of like, I can't say that I haven't lost any sleep on this. I'm, I mean, and I'm kind of like ready to face what's happening, but I also know that it's a risk. I'm in a position, I'm lucky enough to be in a position to take that risk, but not everybody is. And that's one of the things actually that motivated me to write the book. That's that's terrific. A, a ton of insight there, Deborah. You mentioned the issue of tenure. A tenure, of course, in theory, is supposed to give university or college faculty the security to take risks in their research and teaching. So job termination may not be the, the main threat here. It's something less concrete, but possibly more powerful in the form of social censure. Can you talk about the role of social pressure to effectively constrain what's taught, discussed, and debated in the classroom. Absolutely. I think that, and I mean, I think that's a really astute point that it's not about job termination, but it's about the fabric of our our lives, our teaching lives as we live it, right? So it's really expensive to be mistaken for a social conservative if you believe in the things that, that I believe in, if you believe in social justice and equity for all, Um, If you believe that incarcerated people deserve, you know, a great education, if you believe that, you know, urban schools need all of our attention and more, if you believe that every child can succeed in college and the workplace, you know, to sort of be labeled as a conservative or as a person who doesn't care about equity for all um, can be really um, harmful. And I also think that it's tricky and I'm sort of like, 
you know, as, as teachers get older, at first, I feel like, like my first 10 years of teaching, I was given the buy of being younger. And so of course, you know, maybe I'm cool because, you know, I'm, I, I'm listening to the same soundtrack as my students and I am espousing these liberal things, you know, but now, now that I've been a teacher for over 40 years, you know, I can easily be labeled as a person who doesn't get it, right? Who's too conservative. That's not going to help create the relationship with my students that I want to have. And the other thing, to go back to something that I said earlier, I don't want my students to think that I'm someone who's going to make them read something that will hurt them. On the other hand, I don't want to baby them either by protecting them from the true debates that we want to have. So I do feel a little bit of social pressure in uh, November. I'm going to go to a conference that I've gone to for a very long time, the National Council of Teachers of English. There are going to be people there, people who are named and not named in my book who are going to be pretty mad at me. They may or may not come to my session. It's going to be, it's going to be hard to have, I mean, I hope we can have a civil conversation, but it's going to be hard to be judged, right? Nobody likes to be judged negatively um so there's a way in which and this is where i think things got out of hand that we were all kind of riding this sort of feel-good wave that said of course we're not going to teach sherman alexi because we're feminists right of course we're not going to to use any book with the n-word because we're anti-racist or riding that wave in an overly generalized way that made us lose the nuances of individual choices. As you say, Deborah, at some level, you're arguing that students need to confront ideas or arguments that they may find distasteful or even offensive as part of the process of learning. Why do you think that notion has come to be so challenged? Do we underestimate students' ability to withstand contentious content? I appreciate that question so much. I think I think two things. I think we always, I mean, I began my high, my career as a high school English teacher. I mean, if my life had turned out that that was all I ever was, that was everything that I needed to be, like Robert Frost's finger of virtues, right? I mean, I ended up getting laid off and then did what people uh, do when they don't know what to do with themselves. I went to graduate school and as Robert Frost also says, way led onto way. Um, but I have always been astonished by the intelligence of adolescents and of their ability to grapple with really hard things. I think that what our society has done, and this has been exacerbated by the pandemic, is we've infantilized them. I mean, during the pandemic, I had so many of my college students, you know, taking a class from their childhood bedroom with their stuffed animals behind them. It's hard to be a grown-up thinker in that, you know, in that context. Um, and I think, again, partly because of our concern for students' mental health, we've mistaken our students for being, you know, kind of what we call snowflakes. Now, where you and I come from, that, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a terrible thing, um, but that we have over-assigned a level of vulnerability to them that I don't really think they need. And, you know, they'll let us know what they can handle. Um, and we don't have to make some of these a priori discussions for that. 
So I think that the way that we've regarded young people during this pandemic and post-pandemic time, as well as not being able to give students enough credit for how sophisticated they are, is part of what's happened. What would you say, though, to the idea that many historic literary figures, including Poe or Hemingway or Fitzgerald, were misogynists or racists or, or whatever? How do we grapple with the historic record? And how should we make judgments about which, if any, historic literature should remain outside of the contemporary classroom? Right. Uh, I've been thinking about that a lot. So the first thing that I would like to say is that a classic should not be read just because it has been read in the past. I mean, like, I'm old. I went to high school over 50 years ago, and the list of the most commonly taught titles in English classes is almost the same, with the exception of Toni Morrison, as it was when I was in high school in the 60s and early 70s. And that's wrong. Uh, that should change. So I don't think that people should be revered because things have been read over and over again. And I don't want my argument to be seen as a preservationist argument in any way. But I think that if we start doing a kind of moral calibration of artists, writers, composers, our museum walls are going to be empty. Our concert halls are going to be empty. We're not going to be able to listen to, uh, look at Picasso. We're not going to be listening to some operas. We're not going to be reading certain things. Yeah, Hemingway was a misogynist. Let's learn about the, you know, gender critical theory. Let's look at the way that women are portrayed. Let's look at the ways in which his view of women may have seeped into the book. But let's not necessarily say that he shouldn't be read at all because he was a jerk, right? So, and there's also this argument that I've heard from some people, like there's a difference between whether someone that we're censoring is living or dead because, you know, we want to keep them from earning money or something like that. And that doesn't make any sense to me either. So, you know, I don't know the answer to that. You know, I know that people should not get away with doing terrible things to other people. But I don't know what that means about my relationship to their work. And I don't know who it is who can be an arbiter of moral behavior in a way that is consistent and fair across centuries, across generations, um, et cetera. So I don't have the answer, but I think we should be asking the question. Let me turn to my penultimate question. In light of all of this, what, what is your advice to teachers and professors? How can they navigate the climate that you outline in the book? Thanks for that. I think that to be aware that it's a complex and nuanced topic, to have critical conversations like the one that we're having together, right, um, with their colleagues um, to sort of think through things together. Too often, teaching is such an isolating activity. It's ironic, right, because it's, it's one that's filled with people in the classroom but we often make curricular decisions and hard decisions alone as we are preparing. So to have that conversation, to get support from professional organizations, 
to always give students choices, which I always did, right? It's sort of like, if there's ways in which you can't read this because of pressure from home or because it makes you uncomfortable, let's have another choice. Not every book should be read by everyone, but that's not the same thing as saying they should be read by no one. And I also think that people need to talk with themselves to be able to sort of do a calibration of their own moral compass. Why do I have this point of view? Is it because I really believe it or because it feels too politically expensive to go against the grain, right? To say, oh yeah, me too. So I think teachers should do that. In the book, what I tried to do um, in every chapter is to have some specific strategies, whether it's with pairing text, teaching the controversy, giving some what I call escape hatches, you know, not keeping things from kids, letting students decide some of those difficult choices together, informing parents, educating parents, and really getting a support group instead of just kind of collapsing on it. Nobody wants to be um, a culture warrior. That's not what teachers signed up to be, but it seems like that's what we are right now. And if we are, then let's give it a good fight. Let's wrap up on that particular question. What led you to raise your hand? Why did you ultimately choose to speak up? Ultimately, I chose to speak out. Actually, it goes, you know, um, all the way back to um, Sherman Alexi because of a high school teacher um, and as a teacher in an urban school with uh, Native students, I sort of saw the power of the work that he did and how students responded to him. And um, that very high school had was starting to remove his books from the shelves. And coterminously, there was something that I wrote about with Of Mice and Men, which is one of the very, very first books that I taught more than 40 years ago. And, you know, they just sort of like banned it and said, we've got some worksheets and other kinds of things that can do the work of this book. And I, that to me, that was like the straw that broke the camel's back. I said, I cannot, I cannot acquiesce to this. At least I have to say something about why it feels wrong to me, even though I'm sympathetic to people being upset with Sherman Alexi or knowing that of mice and men can be problematic. I'm not saying that there aren't issues, but I just felt like the move to remove them completely from the lives of young people when I know what work they could do for them was just something I couldn't, I couldn't keep silent. The book is Literature and the New Culture Wars, Triggers, Cancel Culture, and the Teacher's Dilemma. Professor Deborah Appleman, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you so much, Sean. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. 
The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.